Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio. We've got a special guest for you today. And I would like to introduce Robin Schroeder coming all the way from Michigan near Ann Arbor. Robin, thank you for joining me here on the Project Purple podcast. Well, you're welcome. Full- I'm honored to be here. Well, I, I'm excited. We we just were talking for like 20 minutes playing catch up. And then I said, right in the middle, I said, Robin, I don't mean to interrupt here. I was kind of rude. Uh, but I want to get this on recording because this is great stuff. Uh, full disclosure, you reached out to me. We connected via social media. We talk about this often here on the podcast, the power of social media. I try to look at the positives and everything. And, and the one thing that social media has allowed me and Project Purple to do is connect with so many people, not only from around the country, but around the world that are fighting this disease, that have fought it, that are advocating for it. So there is power in that. And that's the the positive that I see in the social media for us here at Project Purple and for myself. So you recently reached out, we became friends. You've got an amazing story and I am honored to have the opportunity to share that. So As is customary with all our guests, the first segment of our podcast, I know you've listened to some, so uh, this might sound a a little uh, repetitive for you because you've you've listened to a bunch of them, is we give the guests the opportunity to share their background. And as uh, I've said in the past, um, guests can go as far back as they want, stay as high level as they want, and then we'll go from there. But this is your opportunity to share with our audience here at the Project Purple Podcast what brings you here today, your journey with this thing called pancreatic cancer? Well, um, you know, I, I think when, when a person gets diagnosed with cancer, you really try to trace it back to yeah. when did this start? You know, we question, like, what did I do? How did this happen? And so I started having um, digestive issues uh, in my, probably in my mid to late 20s. I, I'm, I'm going to be 55 this next month. Um, and I just thought it was either normal or it wasn't really something, unless you're dealing with a digestive disorder or you have pancreatic cancer, you really don't talk about your bathroom issues really (laughs) with anyone. And I'm really close to my mom and my mom didn't even know. So that just kind of tells you, I was kind of in the closet with these digestive issues. And, um, you know, I never really thought anything of it. And when I turned 50, I did my colonoscopy and I thought everything's good. I'm not going to say anymore because I thought if there was anything, you know, I never really put digestive with the pancreas mm-hmm. and I didn't, I, I understand the pancreas's function, but not now I know. A lot. So, um, you know, fast forward, I, you know, went through a couple years of, uh, you know, you know, several years of the digestive issues, but I would want to say probably back in 2019, I started noticing um, some really weird things like my skin would hurt. Um, I would get extreme fatigue, like to the point of I would be so lifeless that I couldn't even lift my arms off the bed when I would be Hmm. like trying to go to sleep. And that was not common because I'm a very active person. And so, you know, I reached out to my doctor and I kind of told him, you know, my skin hurts on my arms. I, you know, I just don't understand what's going on. And he was like, you know, he kind of shrugged it off a little bit and I didn't really think anything of it. But in the meantime, my, my husband and I had purchased a home from the 1900s and we rebuilt it. So we tore 
all the insides out and rebuilt it. And we did it on a very fast timeline. We did most of the work ourselves. And so I was thinking maybe this house is making me sick. You know, it, it, it coincided right with, with the timing of us moving and getting the house done. And so I was trying to put two and two together and, and then I just, you know, I never brought it up again to my doctor, but in August of um, 2019, I never had an attack. They gave me the meds and sent me on my way and I was fine. And then I had another attack in January of 2020. And the, the attack hit me pretty quick. So I went, you know, to the doctor and they could see that I was pretty uncomfortable and I had been traveling overseas. Um, I had been to France a couple of times. Uh, and I'm not sure if I had COVID mixed in with this. It hmm. was before they, you know, that we really had it in America, but we had people from China in our office that week. And so, you know, I had a, a pretty high fever and I had some other things going on. So I thought, you know, I thought I had the flu and she said, no, it's just the diverticulitis. We're not going to scan you because you're so miserable. And they sent me home with some meds. And I took my meds and by Thursday, by Thursday, the pain was still there. It wasn't as severe, but I thought this isn't, this isn't normal. So I called my doctor and he said, you know, get to the ER and they'll scan you. So they did a CT scan and the doctor came in and said, you know, it's diverticulitis. And he said, we could, you know, contemplate keeping you. And that question prompted, like, how bad could this be? You know, I've been mm -hmm. on medication for like a week and he picked up the report and he started reading through it. And he said, have you ever had problems? And, you know, I said, no, I said, are you sure, you know, no pain, you know, cause if you, if, if, if you have problems, you would know you would, it, it, the pain would be so bad that you would be, you know, in the ER with it. And I said, no, I haven't had any, any, any issues at all. And he goes, well, you have a pretty large calcification on your pancreas and it's atrophied. Um, hmm. severe atrophy, as a matter of fact. And I said, okay. So, you know, I was getting, you know, upset because, um, as we spoke earlier, I've known, uh, my coach passed away from pancreatic cancer coworker had just passed away from pancreatic cancer. And I thought, you know, when you get the diagnosis of something's wrong with your pancreas, it, it becomes like a big red flag and the, the sirens go off. So, I, you know, went home and called my doctor and like at eight o'clock the next morning and he got me in that afternoon and, and he basically, um, you know, said, this is fairly serious. And he asked me, you know, he basically told me, uh, that I needed to stop my drinking and I kind of <laughs> was puzzled and said, okay, like kind of question mark. And, you know, he came back with you're I'm serious. This is like really serious stuff. And he was kind of painting me like Frank from Shameless. And I, I was kind of getting a little defensive and a little uncomfortable. And I said, it's really not a big deal, you know. And he said, you know, you used to take really good care of yourself. You used to run. You used to do yoga. What what the hell happened? And I said, I'm still that person. Like, mm. nothing's changed. And basically just said, well, we'll scan you in six months and see where you are. And he sent me on my way. And... I, I got home and I was, you know, kind of perplexed by this. And I had said to my husband, like, do you, I think I drink that much. And he was <laughs> like, there's no way in heck you do. Like, like he's, and we were watching Shameless at the time. Yeah. So he, he was like, that's like what Frank, that's a condition that he would be in. Yeah. So I, I sat in, 
I sat, you know, I was working and I sat there and I, I, I called my doctor and I said, I really want a gastroenterologist and I want a dietitian. Mm-hmm. And he basically wouldn't refer a dietitian. And he said no to the gastro, the gastroenterologist that he gave me to had a, a one star um, review. And I thought, gosh, my pancreas deserves better than this. It really does. And so I just called the University of Michigan and said, I just have some questions. And they literally, I mean, I literally had an MRI and a scan like a couple days before this. And they literally were able to look up my scan, like literally while I sat on the phone and they said, we'll get you in next week. So I went in with my mom and my husband by my side so they could defend my lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. we marched into the University of Michigan and I talked to their pancreatic specialist and she said, you know, there's a lot of factors that feed into pancreatitis and, you know, it's genetic and there could be other factors. So we never really go down that road of, you know, heavy drinking. And we can usually tell by other medical factors if a person, you know, so, so they, they believe my story. And so they did some testing, they did some genetic testing, they ran a bunch of labs, and um, they felt that the scans that were presented were of good quality, and they were going to reread my scans. And, you know, off I went, and I saw a dietitian that day, got all my blood work done. Well, as my blood work was coming in, um, everything was coming back normal. My tumor markers, my CA-19, my chromagenin A was coming in, everything was completely, like, by the book perfect lab results. So kind of relieved and, you know, thought with, you know, some dietary changes, I could just, you know, everything would be fine. And um, I had, I think I had just the genetic testing to come through and I forgot about them rereading my scan. And one day at about four o'clock, I got my scan back, my, the reread and my initial scan said that there was, um, you know, there was no lesions, no tumors, nothing on the pancreas. It was just a hard calcification and atrophy. And when the U of M read, reread my scan, it came back with lesions, tumors, possible malignancy, uh, biopsy suggested immediately. Wow. So, so can I, can I jump in here real quick though? So this, this whole time, I mean, this happens pretty quick. I mean, the timeline is, is somewhat, uh, well, you had, the diagnosis of diverticulitis in August. And then this goes into January of 2020. Yep. But then from the doctor saying, you know, oh, it's just a calcium deposit, you know, it's just a flare up, you know, it's your diet, you're an alcoholic or he didn't say you're an alcoholic, but he, I guess he He alluded to it, it, right? Like, Hey, you're drinking too much, which is kind of crazy. Um, then you go to U Michigan and now it's like, well, wait a minute. Like you, everything, the labs come back, everything's good. But then the scan is read the same scan that they looked at that said, Hey, it was a calcium deposit is now saying like, Hey, there's the, the you know, we really need to take this a step further. Yep. So how, what is, what's your mindset at that time? Well, you know, it's funny because two, two different, because I had my MRI and I had a CT. So I had two separate radiologists read the initial scans and both read them wrong. So when I saw that on the paper, I was reading it and I was like shaking and um, my, you know, we were home. I was working from home because of COVID Mm -hmm. and 
my husband was working from, uh, well, he wasn't working. He was laid off because of COVID. So I went outside because he was, he was working on some of our like exterior on the house. And I said, I have cancer. And he said, no, you don't. And I said, yes, there's a tumor. It's on my pancreas. And I couldn't even like get my head around it enough to figure out the phone number to call my doctor, like to call University of Michigan and say, you know, we need to talk about this. I, I need to know. And so, um, you know, they were fairly swamped. And usually when you have a cancer diagnosis, they like to be the one to tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I read, I actually read it and she apologized. They were busy. So she said it wasn't really what we were expecting. And she said, but we have a couple things that we're going to do. They wanted to biopsy right away. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I can't remember the timeline. This was uh, March. Uh, it would have been March 24th um, that, I was diagnosed and I think within by the end of March, I had my biopsy and that came back inconclusive. So they still weren't really sure, but they felt it was neuroendocrine in nature, but it could have been, you know, just one of those cyst like findings as well. So they put me in touch with uh, my surgeon and I think that was in April and he and I talked and he said, you know, we've got a couple options. We can watch and wait and we can do the Whipple. And, you know, we all know the Whipple is not an easy surgery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the outcome is you really don't know what kind of cards you're going to be given when you have the Whipple. And so he said, we have two options. You can do either or. But right now you're in a good situation um, to be, you know, to go through the surgery. But we can't direct you either way. It's, it's really completely up to you. So, you know, I did a lot of soul searching, you know, I was walking at the time. I, I really, did, I was, I'm a runner, so I didn't want to run because I was afraid it was going to make my core pancreas hard. You know, I, I didn't know if I was going to do any more damage to my, my body. So I thought I'll just take it easy and walk. So I was walking and um, I found a dime. And on this day that I found the dime, I was trying to figure out, should I have the surgery or not? And my dad passed away back in 2008 of a massive brain hemorrhage. And ever since he died, I, I find dimes. I find a lot of dimes. Hmm. And so that was my sign from my dad saying, you you have to get this done. And so I got back to the house. I called my surgeon and I said, I, I'm ready. It's time. So that was like eight, the end of April, beginning of May. And I had my Whipple on May 22nd. And um, they felt I had a, a, a very risky case because my my pancreas is very withered, very um, atrophied, mm-hmm. and the reconnection was a, a big issue for them. And so they, um, you know, going in, you know, of course it was COVID, so I was dropped off at the front door, and you know, my husband was called, you know, several hours later. I think I, I was at the hospital by four. 30 5 30 and he didn't get a call until about three in the afternoon saying that mm. I had you know successfully gone through the surgery and they were hopeful with everything and um it took about a week to 10 days to get my pathology report back and it came back uh, a well differentiated grade one um stage three um uh, neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer wow. so um and, you know, I kind of got lucky with the grading because you have different grades of neuroendocrine cancer and mm-hmm. grade one is the slowest growing. Uh, grade two is mid grade. So it can it grows a little bit faster. It might or may not be response uh, chemo responsive. So my cancer is completely um, 
not curable and it doesn't respond well to chemotherapy at all. There's no, there's no even sense of going down that road with grade one. And um, so, you know, basically you think you're cured. It was in my lymph nodes. And um, so now I'm just on a watch and wait um, basically probably for the rest of my life. So um, where do I want to go? So, you know, with, with neuroendocrine cancer, it's a little bit different than the aggressive cancers. And, um, you know, it, it's very sneaky. Like I said, all my mm-hmm. labs were completely normal. So there was, you know, my tumor marker, even though I had a 3.2 centimeter tumor sitting on the head of my pancreas, my, my tumor markers were normal. And so there's really no, no good blood test for uh, neuroendocrine cancer. And there really is no cure. So it's one of those, um, you know, you got to kind of take it a day at a time. And I feel very fortunate because honestly, since my Whipple, I feel, um, I would say, 100% better than I did prior to Whipple. And probably better than I have ever in, you know, my adult life that I can remember. So for me, it it was a very life-changing surgery, but it was life-changing for the better. I got a couple of questions and I want to go back to the beginning. Okay. And I know you had sent me the the wonderful article that we'll, we'll talk about the running because we're going to talk about the running here in a couple of minutes, but the, the article that was just recently put out, which we'll mm-hmm. reference here as well. It, and I'm reading through that and you mentioned that you had digestive issues in, in your twenties. Yeah. We don't have to get into specific specifics, but okay. what is when you say digestive issues? I know in the uh, in the article you said like food always made you feel terrible. So yes. was it just like a digestion issue that no matter what you ate, when you ate, you had GI movements or just stomach pains, and just it just didn't food never settled. I guess it was you know. I had a couple of different things. So the first thing was I always had to know where a bathroom was. Mm-hmm. You could probably equate it to like an irritable bowel yep. syndrome. That's what I was going to ask um, you. There was a lot of times and it, my biggest memory of it was, you know, I worked for a large corporation and we, we had a really large building and I always had to make sure I knew I scouted out the bathrooms to make sure I had one that didn't get a lot of traffic because sometimes I would be held captive and it could be immediately after I ate. It mm-hmm. was, it was really ridiculous. And for me not to like really like raise my hand and say, Hey, I've got this problem. And I kind of laugh with my pancreatic specialist now is like, I said, I probably never said anything because I was hoping not to get the colonoscopy until they found a better way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so you know, I, I was kind of avoiding that. And, it, you know, having my colonoscopy when I was 50 was no big deal. I would have gladly done it. Yeah, but yeah. Um, and so we don't really know like when it started, but, hmm. and then I would also kind of with food, I always ate fairly healthy, but whenever I ate, I always felt like I ate, like overstuffed myself, like Thanksgiving. Huh. Like I always walked away feeling like, just that awful feeling you feel when you've overeaten. And I, I really didn't eat that much, but that was the feeling that I always had. That's And now I don't have either. And now I don't have either. 
I mean, since my Whipple, I have not had a bout of any GI distress at all. And, and you were saying, and I know from reading, like you're a runner, you did yoga. I mean, you're very active. And I know if you're, you know, people who are active tend to be a little bit more conscious about what they eat because they're recovering, especially the runners. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the running aspect of it and recovering, whether, you know, you're using milk or protein or shakes or anything like that. So that's gotta be, that had to be a real challenge for you then if you're, and, and also, not to again get into specifics, but if you're super active, um, you know, and you 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 have to kind of be careful or know where the bathroom is, as you said at like work. I mean, like if you're on the course and taking nutrition, I mean, I know that that's got to be kind of a, a tough situation as well. You know, when it never really affected me when I was running. Oh, that's and, good. Um, you know, I. And I don't eat a lot, even though I'm, you know, even when I'm doing like full marathons, I would do, you know, my goo shots, but that, that really didn't create like issues. Um, with yoga, I do Bikram yoga and there are some, um, yoga poses there that really, and I didn't notice it really previous to Whipple, but post Whipple, there's been a couple times that, you know, you do this pose and I always tell the instructor, if I leave, I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did it, you know, it just gets things moving a lot, but I started, I started doing my Bikram yoga three and a half weeks after my surgery. And I, I felt that it was, it was that, that quiet that I needed, that Mm -hmm. meditation that I needed. Um, and you know, the recovery from Whipple is probably the most enlightening thing I think a person goes through. Um, it For me, it was a very sacred time. And a lot of folks that have had um, any kind of hospital procedure during COVID, you know, I wasn't allowed visitors. I was, you know, in the hospital alone. And a lot of people were like, they feel sorry for patients and I said, Oh gosh, no, it was a blessing for me because I focus. That's, I didn't, I don't want to be there to entertain people. I wanted, I wanted to be there to focus on my recovery and, and I didn't watch TV or anything. I just sat in silence and kind of meditated and, and just powered through it. But, um, I, I, I honestly never had really any problems with running, but I did read an article and I found it interesting that sometimes when you do the longer runs, mm-hmm. your body kind of shuts down. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people's bodies, just that, that whole digestive thing kind of shuts down. So you don't have to worry. Yeah. I, I can raise my hand to that. Uh, I've had that happen once to me in 10 years on a long run and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, you know, just, uh, it was just a hot day. I think I was just over, over, I think I was dehydrated and not hydrated enough. Um, and yeah, my body just like shut down a bit. And, uh, when I went to urinate, it was a, a really, really, really ugly color. That's not normal. And I kind of freaked out a bit and, uh, called a a good friend who's a doctor and he said, Oh, this is what it is. Rehydrate yourself, go get some Pedialyte. And, but you know, and I I was kind of in like this fog too, as well. So it was just really kind of crazy. So, but running can have that effect on you. Yeah. And you don't really drink enough during a run like that to rehydrate either. No, no. Especially when you're doing it on your own, when you're at a race and there's station water stations or aid stations, as they're called, you know, every mile, it's a lot easier to do that when you're going out and running 22 miles on your own. Kind of harder to replicate those situations as, as a race day. Yeah. 
So going back to your treatment, so you, you go through, you get the Whipple, you recover, and now you're kind of in this watch and wait, as you said. So okay. there's no chemotherapy because of the staging or the grading of the tumor that will work. Correct. Um, yep. We know neuroendocrine tumors are different to adenocarcinoma tumors, but still are as dangerous, um, in my opinion, and, and statistically, if you look at that. So this never has been an issue because, and the reason I bring this up is we've had some people on the, the podcast that, you know, had neuroendocrine tumors, you know, show up elsewhere and then show up on the pancreas. One guest I, that I remember off the oh, top yeah. of Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happens. Yep. Yeah, which is, and they just pop up in a variety of places. So with this wait and watch, or watch and wait, I should say, what is now the protocol moving forward? Are you going in every six months or are you, you know, it, like if we go back to the history, like the digestive issues, like you said, and, and this is kind of the frustrating part with this disease as a whole, like they're so vague, right? The symptoms, like you even said in 19, like you had fatigue, your skin hurt, but you had a lot going on, right? You and your husband bought an older home. I've done that before. It's nuts to try to rip a house down, live in it, do all the work yourself. There's yeah. stress that's involved. There's a lot of physical labor that's involved. Um, not to say that the fatigue that you were experiencing was the fatigue that you would experience from doing such a thing, but it could be. Um, but so knowing now moving forward, are, are, are there routine scans that you'll have to have? Or is it just like, hey, if something doesn't feel right, you got to go to the, the doctor and get scanned? Well, it's a little bit of both. So um, I see, and it's kind of um, U of M, has a, a pretty good, you know, th they have a neuroendocrine specialist on their team. Mm -hmm. And I do know that um, they present everything to their tumor board. Uh, I got a lot of um, judgment uh, from people during my diagnosis that were questioning, like, you're not under the right care, because they're not doing what is normal. Mm -hmm. And what they, you know, people who don't, it's very, you know, there's not a lot of information on neuroendocrine cancers and it's, it's very conflicting mm -hmm. and it's hard to research, but what U of M does is I see a pancreatic specialist every six months and then three months after that. So on every six months, I see my pancreatic specialist and then every six months I see my surgeon with a scan and they're done three months apart. So every three months I'm seeing someone and, um, you know, they, they do a lot of talking and figuring out. And, you know, when I was telling her, you know, with, with neuroendocrine cancer, you can get like hot flashes and mm -hmm. you can get just certain very strange, um, they, they secrete hormones, but they don't test you for all the hormones. And, um, so it's just knowing what to look for. And she said, if you ever get these symptoms and like flushing, or you, you just feel funny, then we'll move up your scan. So, you know, it's basically a very open dialogue between my surgeon and my pancreatic specialist and the rest of the team. We're all communicating. And that makes it very nice because I have a very diverse team at the University of Michigan. I have um, some issues right now with kidney stones. So I have a urologist and they're all connected. They're all talking to one another. And that kind of 
kind of lets me kind of take a break. I don't have to worry about cancer. I try not to think about it. Um, cause neuroendocrine cancer, how was, how it was explained to me is it's kind of like a dandelion, right? When they mm-hmm. go to seed, they you blow it and it, it kind of lands. If it lands on the pavement, it's not going to grow, but if it lands someplace where it's happy, then it's going to, you know, take hold. And that's how neuroendocrine cancer is. So, you know, my kind of take on it is I have to live my days the best I can. I'm healthy right now. I feel great. So I'm enjoying every minute. And I have a, a two small findings on my lungs. And I have a few findings on my liver, but they're not neuroendocrine. Um, they don't feel they're too small to biopsy, but we're, we're watching them. Um, I do my best in between my visits, right, to, you know, work out. I, you know, nutrition is key because with Whipple, you have absorption issues. So I mm-hmm. make sure that everything that I eat has some kind of nutrition I don't eat out anymore. I, um, if I do go places, I take my own food. Mm-hmm. Um, I just can't trust how it's prepared. And I've kind of um, gotten away from processed food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I drink solely just water. Mm-hmm. And so I'm changing that. And, you know, the other thing is your mental mindset, right? I mean, you can't, you can't give in to the disease or else it's going it, to, it just, I just, I, I refuse to go there. And, you know, every once in a while, I, I, I kind of think, wow, I have cancer. And I just have to, like, I let myself get there for a second. And then I just say, okay, I can't go there. I just have to kind of move on. Because looking at me and seeing how I'm, you know, you know, doing all of my activities that I've done so quickly after Whipple, a lot of people will say, gosh, you look healthy. You, you, you look great. I feel great. You know, but I, you know, I try to explain, I have a chronic condition, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's just like lupus or something else. I just have to really, you know, my husband has a hard time with it because I'm not as, um, I tend to have a little bit of noise sensitivity now that I didn't have prior to Whipple. And Mm -hmm. he kind of, it's weird because I can't have like many conversations going on at once. It it just overwhelms me a little bit. and he kind of noticed that. And I said, I just, I don't know if it's the nature of the cancer or it's the nature of, of Whipple. You know, yeah. it's a little bit of, it could be a little bit of both. That's interesting. I've, I've never heard that yet, but that's not to say that other people don't have that issue, which is the great thing about this podcast and sharing those stories. I have a couple of questions here. Sure. And you brought one up, which we're going to go to. So, you mentioned, you know, the, the back up the, the team at the University of Michigan, which sounds amazing that you've able to find these people and you know all the work that's being done for your care. Did you ever go back to the doctor who made you feel like Frank from Shameless? I've got to ask that question because I'm sure someone listening is going, "Whatever happened to Doctor Frank?" Or well, I don't know. We're not going to give him. We won't mention his name, but like the guy who made you feel like Frank. Well, I kind of have a funny story with that because I decided that I really needed to call him and, and I didn't talk, you know, with university of Michigan, the difference between like my other doctor and university of Michigan, if you call university of Michigan, my surgeon calls me personally, my pancreatic specialist calls me personally. I don't get the the nurse and nothing wrong with nurses assistants. I'm not slamming that, but if I have a question, the surgeon's going to be answering it mm-hmm. for me. It, you, you don't have to go back and forth. Well, I had called my doctor's office or my, I, I, I tell everybody I divorced my doctor <laughs> and um, 
And some people have said, you are married to your doctor? And I'm like, no, I just divorced him. And so I, 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 I called him and I said, I said, I just want you to leave a message, um, you know, for, for, for doctor, if you could just let him know that, you know, all of the drinking and the abuse to my body that he thought I was doing, it really wasn't that at all. It's something called pancreatic cancer. If you could just pass that along, I would appreciate it. And she just said, oh, okay. And I never heard back. Yeah, I don't think you would. (laughs) No, but I just wanted him to be more sensitive. You know, one bedside manner, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, I, I really still kind of like, Cause I was scared. You're scared when you're, yeah. when you're, when something's wrong with your pancreas, you're scared. And then to go in and, and get that, it was, it was, you know, I just had to kind of let him know that, you know, you need to kind of take a step back. Now my ex-husband still visits this doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so it's interesting. I, I don't know if a conversation has come up, but I, I know that he has put my husband or my ex-husband through some, some of his normal testing that, you know, he probably wouldn't have done <laughs> previous so i wonder I don't know why yeah robin i but. think uh you mic dropped him as they say um like you know if we had a mic you just drop it on him you know with that, that <laughs> yeah. statement um i commend you for doing that and and i and i'm not i don't mean that in a cynical way or, or a sarcastic way whatsoever and you know this is something that we've talked about you know, that doctors have to have compassion. I mean, I get it. They, they go to school, they're very intelligent, but you know, I, I you know, and the, and the audience listening at home, you know, as well, it's like, it, it's amazing that, you, you know, you found a team, you went to a major center and, and we advocate this a lot, like go to a major center. Like if your doctor doesn't deal with pancreatic, you know, the pancreas all day, every day, then find someone yeah. who does, but then find someone who cares. And it sounds like you've got great doctors at the University of Michigan that that truly, genuinely care about you. Not to say that others don't, but like y- you have that connection and they answer your questions and you ask questions and they give you answers that, you know, that you have to those, those questions. And, and that's really critical. And, you know, we, we don't talk, I think enough about that on this well, podcast. The other, yeah. The other thing that you know, I learned through this process, I, I'm a pretty upfront person. And I sometimes might not say something right at the moment, but mm-hmm. I sit back and digest it. And the one thing that I learned, and I've always been kind of an advocate for, you know, anti-bullying and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, like if it was someone like my mom, mm-hmm. and she goes to her doctor, and they tell her this, she would probably think her one glass of wine one day a week was damaged to her body. And yeah. she would have walked away and said, okay. And she would have, she probably would have not went back for her scan for six months later. Yeah. And if I would have done that, I don't know where I would be. You know, I, you know, this thing was, you know, we know that the pancreas on my, the tumor on my pancreas had been there a long time. They figure and guesstimate it was at least over 10 years. Wow. And um, now the lymph nodes they were very small. So I don't know if had, you know, if it had just, you know, kind of started getting into that mode, but I had some grade two level cells mixed in. So, you know, and they can, you can have um, with neuroendocrine cancer, you can, you can have a grade one tumor and then you can have grade two as well. Like it can come back as a grade two or, or vice versa. It's a very strange thing, but um, it's just, you know, kind of part of the, 
part of part of the package, you know. Fascinating. So, I, I you you said a, a lot, and I've been taking a lot of notes, and I have a couple questions, and I, I do want to get into the running. Okay. But before we go there, and you just said something, so it, it, this is like perfect timing for it. You know, you said the the way that you process things and the way you say things. I kind of call that kind of the, the mindset. And you've said kind of a lot of things like you were, you talked about, and, and I'm just chuckling here because we've heard, you know, with COVID and that was one of my questions, like, what was it like during COVID? But you didn't know anything prior to, but the thing you did say was you actually liked it, that it wasn't like a, I, I don't know if you use the term a circus, but you know, you could focus on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact of matters because with COVID and, and still with a lot of places, patients, as you say, get dropped off at the door and go in by themselves, which is really strange because prior to this pandemic, you know, I look back at my family, my own personal experience, like it was a party. It was literally a circus every time my dad had chemotherapy because, you know, someone or a family member or friend was coming in and, you know, my mom was bringing in, you know, a picnic basket full of food because she was so paranoid to uh to eat anything the hospital provided with us not that it was bad it just that that was just her mindset so where does that mindset though to get back to my question where does that come from because that doesn't happen overnight no i don't think everybody would would do well um with it um and the only thing i can think of is running right i mean i run alone I don't do, I don't do group running. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not a a chatty Kathy when it comes to running and everything else. I, 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 I don't mind talking and all of it, you know, I'm pretty social, but it's the, the meditation that I get from Bikram yoga has been an amazing, um, you know, I've been doing Bikram for about 10 years and that has was instrumental, but running was really where it was for me. It's like training for a marathon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have your long runs and my, I, I started doing marathon running uh, just a little history. I've always ran five K's. I started running when I was in my twenties and my uncle is 20 years, my senior. And when he was 60 and I was turning 40, he asked if I would do a half marathon with him. And I kind of chuckled and said, okay. And, um, that was 15 half marathons ago and three full marathons. And so I've just kept, I've kept going and he was diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago. And one of our running, he was, um, my uncle's best friend. He actually died of pancreatic cancer. And he was oh. one of our, he was one of the per- people that ran with us at every race. He was, you know, he was very, you know, we had four of us that went every, you know, every year we would do one and he would always orchestrate, you know, make the plan and do all that kind of stuff. And we lost him about four years ago to pancreatic cancer. He was diagnosed in, in December, he was set to do, I think we were going to do Knoxville that year. And we signed up and we carried his, um, his number with us and got a, we explained at the finish line that, you know, our friend couldn't be here because we were going to try to get him in a wheelchair, but he was too weak. And we went to his house, um, on Monday after the race and presented him his medal and his t-shirt and he died two days later. Mm. And, um, so for me, it was like, I had to focus on that quiet. I just needed, and I don't even know where my mental mind space was during that time. I, I remember my husband dropping me off at the door. I remember getting up in the morning and I, and I, I think he said, are you scared? And I said, no. And he said, you're not. And I said, no, I said, it's 
you know, the sooner I get in, the sooner I can heal. And the more that I wait, I'm not getting anywhere. It's like, a you know, a hamster wheel. And, you know, I remember I never looked back. I got out of the car and I just kept walking. And I remember I walked down the hallway. You know, it's a long hallway. The hospital is completely empty. Um, if you've gone to, you know, any hospital during non-COVID, it's very busy and hectic. Mm-hmm. And you go during COVID and, I mean, there's no one. And this lady and I got called back for surgery and I had a big bag and she had just an overnight bag. And she was like, you packed for a long time. I said, I don't know how long I'm going to be here. So I wanted to make sure I was covered. I, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I, you know, I brought books, I brought, you know, my tablet, I, you know, I was ready, you know, for the vacation. Right. I just, you know, Staycation. Needed to make sure. yeah, I didn't know what I was in for. And, um, you know, I took my, clay mask and I made sure I had lipstick. I don't care about any other makeup. If I have my lipstick, I'm good. So, you know, and I, I did have a roommate and I felt really bad for her. She was very social. She was on the phone a lot and she was, she had um, some issues with her bladder and they actually, she got a cancer diagnosis while she was there. Hmm. And I remember, you know, she had the curtain pulled and I, I asked her if she was okay. And she said, I have a lot to think about. And then she asked if she could come sit on my bed. And I said, yes. So we sat and, and, and we talked quite a bit and, you know, and, and we walked the halls together and she was, you know, I wish I would have gotten her contact information so I could stay in touch with her, but um, we just parted our ways. But, you know, she, she, I, I felt really bad for her. You know, she went in not thinking she had cancer and had her surgery and they found, you know, pathology. So for me, it was like, I really enjoyed the piece and I needed it. You know, I, I would just talk to my son, you know, a couple times a day, I FaceTime my son and my, you know, my mom, my ex-husband had called and my husband called. So I had people calling me, which was nice. And, but when you go through Whipple, you really have a hard time communicating. Mm-hmm. And it was really something, um, and I still have it. I, you know, I'm a year out and I still lose words. I can't figure out the right word to say, or I'm a very good speller and I couldn't, I can't figure out how to spell a simple word. And I, I got home. I was in the hospital for five days. I came home and I was sitting on the couch. My son came over and I was texting someone. <laughs> he said, will you please just give me your phone? Cause this is painful to watch you. <laughs> he would dictate for, him. I would, dic- he would, you know, he would type the text and I would uh, dictate to him. So it was like one of those processes that you just can't, you, the flow is not there. Yeah. So for me, it was so much work to try to engage. And, and you know, it's the same way, like, you know, you're a runner. So when you're running a marathon, you're kind of focused on the finish line, but you're just taking one step at a time. And you're just, you know, what, what if you're listening to music, you're listening to music. If you're just focusing on your heartbeat or your breathing, it's, it, it just does something to the soul, right? It just gets you through. Yeah, it's literally one step at a time. And you you, you try to, at least I do, uh, try to ignore the pain, right? <laughs> of the, the agony and the pain of, even if it's a half marathon, right? You start off pretty good, you're excited. And then you kind of, you know, get to that get point. To mile, yeah. You get to mile 11. And you're like, uh, can I finish? Am I going to be able to finish? Do I have to go to the bathroom? Am I thirsty? You know, all the, and then you just try to find that, um, I, I don't know if it's a Zen or, you know, a Chi where you can just like 
focus on your breathing. Don't worry about the cramp in your calf or in your your quad or wherever it may be bothering you and just focus in. So I, I can totally understand what you're saying on that, um, which is pretty powerful, you know, and I, I think that's something that, you know, hearing you say what you just said about, you know, going into a hospital and it being quiet. And as daunting as that may seem, and, and, you know, maybe we'll preface this saying, maybe that's not what everyone is prepared, you know, can prepare themselves mentally, but, you know, I, I, th- there's, a, there's a lot of power in visualization and, yes. I, and, you know, in running, like, what, what do they tell you? Like visualize the finish, right? So in a way, if I'm hearing you correctly, it was almost like honing in on that power of visualization and not having the distractions of, you know, you've got valets zipping patients through the halls. You got patient people coming in to see patients with, you know, balloons and gifts and, you know, for a variety of, of, of reasons, not just for cancer, but, you know, you have all that, that noise, right? And now you eliminate yeah. the noise, you can focus and you can focus at the task at hand. You know, the, the journey is to have the surgery, to recover, to get home, to live. And absolutely, maybe by you know circumstance here with what's happened, that hopefully maybe other people have had the ability to do that. Now, naturally, there's there's gonna be concern or nerves, just like there is. And I'm not trying to draw a comparison that you know running a marathon or a half marathon is is the same thing as going through a Whipple here. Not at all. But you know when you have nerves, there's there's that nervous energy that we all have when we go through these things and similar to, you know, going through Whipple, potentially, you know, putting yourself on the line. If this is your first marathon you've ever run, I mean, people have thrown up because they're so nervous, um, you know, for the marathon. And I'm sure people have thrown up, you know, realizing that they have to go in for a surgery like this. Oh yeah. I know. I know one of the, one of the things that kind of, you know, just the, the negativity, I think we talked before, you hit record was mm-hmm. the negativity on, on, you know, when you talk to a, a Whipple patient, there's very few positive stories. Yeah. They're, they're very hard to find. And a lot of these people, you sense desperation, um, their fear that they, they, you know, they're so scared. And I try to, you know, I try to answer those that I can and just let them know this is like a doable surgery. It's painful. It's hard, but it's one step at a time and, and you can't look past, you know, today or tomorrow. And, you know, I was, I had such a, a, you know, I came out of surgery. I did, you know, fairly well the next day. And I was like, okay, when is the bad going to start? And I kept thinking, okay, today it didn't happen, but something's going to happen because that's what everybody says. And then I just kept going. And on the, I think it was like on my second day, my, my surgeon came in because I had medical teams that came in twice a day and they were pretty big because it's a teaching hospital. So they had, you know, it wasn't just one or two doctors. It was a team of people and they would talk. And, and my, my, my surgeon came in and he was like, you know, I was standing up and walking toward the bathroom and he had asked if I was, if I was going to the restroom and I said, no, I'm going to take a walk. And he said, well, I'm going to walk with you. <laughs> and so we walked around the whole surgical floor and he was kind of observing and he finally looked at me and he goes, Robin, you just had Whipple. <laughs> I said, 
I know. And he goes, no, this is a big deal. Like we expected this not to go so well. And you're up here walking and this is amazing to me. And they must, you know, for me, it was just, it was just one of those things, but, and I'm hoping that I can pass along to other people who are facing the surgery that it's really, you know, there's a lot of good to it. And if you focus on the positive and a lot of times it's really hard to tell every patient, I don't care how far you have to dig within your soul. There's you, you smile at every single person you pass in the hallway. Cause I did walk the hallways. I had my mask and I walked the hallways. I couldn't walk circles in my room. That's just not my style. <laughs> but, but like on the second day I did 4,000 steps and then I just said, okay, I'm going to keep going. And by, I think I was out of the hospital and post-op a week, I did three miles. And so that just kept feeding. It just, and so then I kept posting and people were like, how are you doing this? And I'm like, I just, I see beauty in everything. And, and the, there's a gratitude that comes along with it. And so you start your day and you read affirmations. I don't care what website quotes, positive, whatever you can ingest, you pull it in and you believe it. And and every day, no matter what, while you're going through this, you you just have to seek out that positive. I I actually drowned it out the negative. I just couldn't. I just even today because I've I've had a taste of what life is like without drama, right? Mm-hmm. We all kind of kind of you know people kind of like to talk negative or you know complain, I guess. And you know sometimes I just I have to shut it down because it's just too much noise for me and. And, you know, I, I don't, I can't, I can't do the stress. So I just, and that's one thing that has changed for me. I'm a type A, I'm a workaholic. And so, you know, I, I take a step back and it's like, you know what, if I don't get it done today, it's going to wait. There's nothing I can do. I can't work any harder. I'm, I'm, I'm tired some days and I, I have to listen to myself, but you know, it's, it's just bringing the light that, you know, don't, don't, give up before the process is even started. And I think a lot of people, once they hear pancreatic cancer and Whipple, they fall apart and there's really no time. There's no time for that. You you can't, you just got to keep focused on the positive and just keep pushing. It's powerful stuff. I, I, I cannot agree with you more on that. I mean, it, it is so many golden nuggets, as I say, in what you just said, um, because it's easy to get caught up in the negative. And this disease, unfortunately, has a very, very negative connotation, uh, a very negative reputation associated with it. Yeah. But the yeah. more that we can bring stories like yours to an audience and to the public and share these ideas and share this, uh, hopefully we can, we can rid that. I've got two questions left here for you. First of all, you mentioned lifestyle. You've had to change your lifestyle, diet, yoga. How has that been? And I know just reading the article, you referenced the running and how the Whipple was like training for a marathon. And, you know, you, you have to be slow and steady pace and you have to kind of, you know, as you, and you said it was like your recovery was your full-time job. So yes. are there any, and this is kind of twofold. I know you've mentioned some stuff already, but with regards to changing that lifestyle and with your recovery, are there any tips that you could share or maybe like something that just has really assisted you in changing that lifestyle? 
and getting yourself physically to the right place where you 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 you've done everything you've done to fight this thing head on and you're doing all the things right. So the one thing that I think about a lot is, um, and I see it on, on, on the different sites, whether it be, you know, the supportive groups, you know, people have the Whipple and they really want their normal back. Right. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it, people strive for that normalcy and, and, and getting back to your normal means that you didn't get beat by cancer. But in the same regard, your body is so anatomically different now that you've mm -hmm. had, you know, most of your internal organs removed and replaced and put back together. And so the one thing that that I'm that I tell people with Whipple is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they get through the surgery and within a couple of weeks, they're, you know, trying to eat Burger King and McDonald's and and they pride themselves on the fact that they can do it, but then they get Whipple attacks and they're very sick. And, you know, my comment is always, you know, you're, you're, and they want to drink alcohol. That's mm. the other thing. Like, and I just don't, for me, and I'm very opinionated when it comes to this, I'm, I've been given one body, right. Mm -hmm. And you have to treat it well. So if you treat it bad, that bad it goes forward, right. You don't know when it's going to yeah. hit. So for me, my medical team spent, countless hours preparing for my surgery, countless hours coaching me, you know, through what was going to happen. You know, my surgery was eight and a half hours long. My recovery was tough. And I was literally out every day walking. It was rain, shine. It didn't matter. I, I was out walking. I logged, I, I logged over 200 miles the first two months after Whipple. And I tell people, you know, think about how your surgeon would feel if you go in and say, I'm having all of these problems, but this is what I'm doing to myself. It's controllable, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't have your beer, but you and you can't have your fried foods, but it's not really good for you. So, you know, I didn't eat very bad to begin with, but, you know, everybody goes on those diets and mm -hmm. I, I really hate that. I really despise that word. And, you know, I watched what I eat pretty much, but hey, if we went out to dinner and I wanted French fries, I would eat French fries. I don't have room to do that anymore. And um, I literally feel so good that I'm not going to chance it with just the sake of the taste of a French fry. Does that make sense? It's Absolutely. To me, it's, it's so small. And and just this alone, like having Whipple and really the major things that I have cut out is, you know, I, I watch the oil that I, that I put in my food. I, I, it's olive oil or, or, or um, avocados. Mm -hmm. I use the all natural healthy oils. I, I really research my food, but my cholesterol has always been 200 or more since mm -hmm. I was in my twenties. I'm not a heavy person. I'm, I'm five foot nothing. And right now I weigh about 110 pounds, but um, you know, I was always took, you know, very good care of myself on the outside. I looked really healthy, but my cholesterol was over 200 and the doctors wow. were like, you know, you got to exercise more. And I'm like, I lift weights. <sighs> I, I was a spinning instructor. I, you know, I did, you know, now I do yoga and I run and I said, I, I lift weights. I don't know what more you want me to do. It was my, my, my good cholesterol was so low that my risk ratio was high. I had my labs ran probably in September and my cholesterol dropped 50 points. Wow. I mean, that's powerful. And my husband, it's kind of interesting because he's watching, 
what I've done. And he says, I don't know how you do it. I don't think I could do it. I don't think I could do what you do, but he is now, you know, he's taken sugar out, you know, and I don't, yeah. I don't believe in the, the, the sugar feeds cancer belief, but I don't sugar anything. Um, and I haven't for a long, long time, but he doesn't put sugar in his coffee anymore. And he's eating, you know, some people have asked, cause I put a lot of my food on my Facebook page yeah. and he, you know, and people say, does your husband eat like that? And I'm like, he has to eat what I cook. <laughs> he has no choice. <laughs> he has no choice. Um, so that was the, the, the one thing. The other thing is, you know, during the years I've, I've, I've always been active. Um, like I said, I've done Bikram yoga for 10 years. I've been running, um, in my twenties, I did, you know, five Ks. And once I hit my forties, I started my half marathons, did a few full marathons. And I, I was, I was inconsistently consistent, right? I mm -hmm. would go out and if I was training, I trained, but if I wasn't, I, you know, I could have an excuse not to like, it's too hot tonight. I'm not going to go out. I'll go in the morning and then not do it. So I was really good at, at kind of procrastination and then making an excuse not to, and I don't do that anymore. It's, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do, you know, a couple miles. I was diagnosed. I had my one year scan um, just a couple weeks ago and I was diagnosed with a six millimeter kidney stone that's lodged in my left uterer. And I was, I was, I was slated to do my second half marathon after my one year Whipple anniversary. I was going to do another one. Uh, it was a couple weeks ago. And I asked my urologist, can I, can I run this marathon? And he was like, no. So I called him back and I'm like, do you think I could walk it? And he said, well, you could walk it, but you might have, you know, some signs that you're disrupting, you know, the, the stone. It might mm -hmm. be, make you a little bit unhappy. So I, I, I went and I, I actually dedicated, and it was important that I wanted to do this run. My girlfriend had lost her husband. He was 36, um, just kind of a weird, he had a seizure and passed away in front of his nine-year-old twin children and his wife and his mom. Hmm. And um, I told her I would run this race every mile for him. And so it was kind of important for me to do it. So I showed up and laced up and I thought, well, I'm going to run my first three miles, you know, just to kind of break some of my, you know, cause if you walk a half marathon, it takes forever. Mm -hmm. And I got to my three mile and I thought, I'm going to run, I'm going to run till six. And then I got to six and I'm like, okay, I'm going to run till nine. And then I ended up running the whole thing. And I, you know, I told my surgeon, cause when he saw the kidney stone, he was like, wait, well, you know, he wanted to make sure I was getting seen for it. And I said, yeah, I talked to the, you know, the doctor and he said that I could, you know, walk this half marathon and I, I, I just couldn't do it. And, you know, Dr. Cho kind of laughed and said, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. I said, I ran it instead. And he just started laughing. So, so I just don't have that. I can't. And now I'm having a hard time because I'm slated for surgery in a couple of weeks and I want to really hold steady. I don't want to have any emergencies. So I'm trying to be good, but I am going out and kind of walking three miles every day. But um, it's really just not having that excuse because now I, it's, it's needed, you know, the mental for the mental aspect of it and the physical aspect. I'm afraid if I stop that I'm going to kind of, I don't want that backward momentum. I, I need to keep pushing forward. It's powerful. Yeah. One, uh, one other question here. You mentioned okay. you had that uh, marathon uh, a year from the Whipple. What was that like crossing the finish line? I've got the article here in front of me and they've got the picture here of you crossing the finish line. Uh, what was that feeling like? Well, I'll tell you, I, um, and this gets, it's going to get me emotional. Um, I never really questioned whether I was going to run 
after Whipple or not. Um, I never really, I never really thought much about it. And one day it was probably eight weeks after Whipple. I decided to try it. I think I, I jogged two steps and said, Nope, not today. And I kept trying and I finally, it wasn't pretty. I would grab my sides and, and run and people in my neighborhood were probably thinking, I wonder what's wrong with her. (laughs) But I finally got to where I could jog. And then at my six month um, scan, I, I, told my doctor, I said, I think I'm going to try to do a half marathon on my Whipple date. And he, he, he chuckled and he said, let me know how that goes. And I said, okay. So, and I, I didn't commit to anybody. I usually will tell people if I'm training, but I, I kind of closet trained for, for the whole time. Cause I didn't want anybody knowing I was doing this. And, um, I did some research and I found a half marathon is they're really hard to find cause they're all virtual and virtual is not the same as actually going to a race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found a race on the exact day and I drove up by myself and, and did it. And I, I had a lot of, I had a list of people on my arm that I dedicated the race to, um, and all of them had struggles, like big struggles. And um, some of them had died uh, from pancreatic cancer. And when I got up to the finish line, there were several times during the run that I, I got really kind of emotional. I started, I, I would choke up, you know, and I was, you know, kind of, tr- tr- you know, just kind of going along and about mile, mile 11, I was getting kind of fatigued and sore and, you know, kind of hitting that proverbial wall. And I kind of, said to myself, gosh, I just had Whipple, you know, what is a little leg pain? And I, I just continue, you know, I, I just picked up the pace and, and finished. And when I came up over the hill, I just, I just, I, I, I got very emotional and the people at the end of the finish line didn't quite get it, you know, cause not many people cross the finish line are in tears. And I said, today's my one year Whipple anniversary. And they were like, wow. And then I walked back to my car and as I came up the hill, my dad's favorite song was playing. They had a DJ, you know, kind of doing the thing. And, and I got back to my car and I called my mom and I said, mom, I did it. And, and she started to cry and my mom doesn't cry. And she just sat there and sobbed. And I think it was her way of knowing that I'm back and it's not going to stop me because knowing that I could run a half marathon, you know, cause you've got all the training that goes along with it. Right. Mm-hmm. It, you just can't say, you know, I'm going to just start running a half marathon and and go out the next day and do it. I have done that. It's not advisable, but um, you know, there was a lot of training that went into this and, and then I had my fourth best, best half marathon time, you know, out of, uh, I think at the time it was like my 14th race and I had like one of my, one of my better times. So for me, it was a monumental run. It was very emotional and it was just, kind of like a way of saying cancer is not going to win. Powerful. You know, when you're saying that story uh, about the song coming on, I just, uh, the hair on the back of my neck just stood up because it's just so freaky, uh, you know, and and not, I, I, yeah, it just like gets you, it moves you. You saw the, you saw all the dimes on that, in that picture on the article. Those are all of the dimes that I have found during my recovery out on my walks and stuff. There's a higher power. I truly believe that. And um, yeah, special, special, special stuff. Last yeah. question for you, Robin. Sure. 
I promise. And this is, okay. a, this is a loaded <laughs> question. There's no right or wrong answer to this, as I always uh, tell our guests when I ask this question. What is your definition of pancreatic cancer? So, you know, for me, it's, it's a pretty powerful force um, that flips your world upside down in literally an instant when they say you have a finding on your pancreas. But with that, it, you know, there comes with courage and bravery and gratitude because it really takes courage and bravery to get through what a cancer patient has to go through. And it's not just pancreatic cancer, right? It's any other cancer. You know, you've got the scans, IVs, tests. They're very intrusive. The surgeries, the, you know, the, the diligent scans, the, the changes that you have to make to get through it. Um, and I, I've kind of said, you know, the gratitude that comes along with the cancer diagnosis, um, the world is so different now. And in, in a good way, I, I have, I've, I've said to people, you know, if people could see the beauty in the world that I see now without a cancer diagnosis, the, the world would be such a better place. And for me, that's the you know, the biggest thing, I see things so much clearer. Um, I see things, I see, I see beauty in everything. Like one day I was walking post, post, you know, post-op and I saw, I looked down and I saw this puddle and it was a heart. And I thought, well, I got to take a picture of this. I document, it, you'll see on, on my face, I document my, my runs, my walks and I'm like, who would see this heart in a puddle? Probably just me. <laughs> and so I see things that maybe I think other people like just don't see because they're too busy. And, you know, I, I, you just don't know how much time you have left. I have a good prognosis, but it just spins your life a little bit for the better. Powerful stuff. Last thing, if someone listening to this podcast wants to talk to you, maybe it's about diet, uh, you know, maybe about your your journey, something in particular, and they've just been recently diagnosed, or maybe they're going through it, or maybe it's a family member. I know you've mentioned Facebook, um, you're on social media. Where is the best place for someone in our audience to maybe connect with you to learn more, to talk to you more about their journey and your journey as well? Um, you know, Facebook is a good one. Um, I'm Robin Schroeder and I, I, there's probably many Robin Schroeders, but maybe if you look up Petersburg, Michigan, you'll connect with me there. Instagram. Um, I'm, I'm active on both. I try to do positive affirmations on Instagram every, every day. And I'm, um, under Instagram is Robin underscore Lynn underscore two, the number two. Awesome. And then I can always be reached by email and that's run R U N Berta B E R T A run like run forest run, but it's <laughs> run Berta run at hotmail.com. I love it. And you've got a hotmail account. Like I do someone 
was joking with me the other day and said, how do you still have Hotmail? Do you have a, do you have dial up too as well? I was like, I don't I get it. Like, I guess I so. I don't know. I have Gmail too, but like I always use my Hotmail for some reason. I don't know. You know, I ha- I have, I'm under Gmail too, under the same run, bird or run at Gmail, but Gmail for me is so much harder to use. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, someone said, gosh, if you're, if you're looking for a job, never put your Hotmail account on your resume because it just says that you're, you're antiquated yeah. and I'm like but it's it's outlook it's okay yeah I that's what I don't get either it's outlook right like it's <laughs> office I when I type in office 365 I get outlook so I don't know I don't get it um Robin this has been awesome uh it's been an honor to be able to share your journey with our audience uh, I've taken so many notes here and and you know this mindset that we talked about and you having the ability to share that powerful mindset and sharing that with our audience is just so powerful. And and I hope the audience takes away what I've taken away from this and and what you've said about, you, you know, having that mindset and not, you know, just like what you just shared, like seeing the positives, like the puddle, like how many people stop. And, you know, I, I really respect that. And thank you for sharing that with our audience. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that. Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm so honored um, to talk to you and to, to spread the word. Um, it's important for me um, that people, you know, hopefully can change the stigma and, and really trudge through. I, you know, there are stage four survivors out there. I'm stage three. Um, I have, I have no plans on going anywhere anytime soon. So I love it. And we're going to continue to follow your journey. So thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast. Thank you for listening at home, at work, in the car, at the gym. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to share this episode. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast.